All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I'm your host, Cameron Ivey. With me is Gabe Gums, my co-host. And today, I have the founder and CEO of Tonic. Welcome to the show, Ian. Hey, great to be here. Why don't you go ahead and break down how you got into this industry, where you started out, uh, just kind of your journey from here to where you've worked up to, to being this, the founder of, of Tonic. Yeah, totally. So uh, Tonic actually came out of uh, some of the work that the founding team did at a company called Palantir. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Palantir, Palantir is a big data analytics company. They work in both the government and the uh, private, uh, you know, private business side. Um, I worked on the commercial side. So, um, you know, what would happen there is that we would have these issues around data portability. Um, I'll give you uh, an example of that. Uh, one of the things that happened to me is I was, on, uh, you know, working on site at a large bank and, uh, you know, some things weren't working well. So, I, you know, I sent the error messages back to the developers that I was you know, were supposed to help out with this. And they said, oh, well, can you send over the data? And, uh, you know, the answer was, of course not. Uh, this is, you know, secure banking data. So, you know, we needed to come up with a solution there so that these developers could actually jump in and help us, uh, but obviously couldn't, you know, exfiltrate data from uh, a, a large bank. So what we did is we uh, made a fake version of that data just using manual tools, Python, stuff like that, and sent that data over. And then, you know, but that took weeks. Uh, and then, you know, the data didn't update, but it was super useful for diagnosing issues and uh, building future product. So as we were starting to think about starting a company, this was one of the things that uh, was sort of at the forefront for us is like, how could we actually enable this for the rest of the world? How could people uh, start using the idea of synthetic data or, you know, facsimiles of data so that they can, you know, send data around and not breach privacy, but still stay productive? Where did you start out? I mean, you're pretty young, uh, being a founder of a company in where did you go to college after college? Were you, is this something that you dreamed of doing or did this kind of just happen? <laughs> it's, it's funny that you mentioned that, you know, I, I no longer consider myself young, uh, especially, you know, with all the, uh, current, uh, current events going on and you look at the stats, you know, I don't feel as young as I could, <laughs> but I, I appreciate that. Um, so, uh, I actually went to school at Stanford. I've actually wanted to do this for, uh, essentially my whole life. In fact, one of my co-founders is actually a friend of mine from middle school. So, uh -huh. you know, I've been literally talking about starting a company, not this company. I mean, that would be, uh, <laughs> quite, uh, you know, we're not, we like to think that we're, you know, good at guessing the future, but that would have been really good. Uh, yeah. so, um, yeah, so we've known each other since middle school, uh, back in Wisconsin, uh, and then uh, went to Stanford for undergrad. You know, obviously there's a lot of talk of startups there. So that was you know, something that was sort of continued to flow through. And then I spent time uh, at a hedge fund and then Palantir uh, and then Tableau actually, and then uh, started this company. So a lot of experience in the you know, data analytics, uh, data infrastructure space prior to doing this. Awesome. And what, is, what does data privacy mean to you and your company? So for us, it's really around, I mean, the key thing for us is that how do you make data portable, but not reveal information that uh, you don't want to reveal. So yeah. uh, it's really a question of protecting the data uh, to the extent you need to um, while still being able to get your job done. 
Uh, and, you know, that's not always possible. There's a lot of things where, you know, you kind of have to make a choice, but uh, we want to be really explicit about that choice and uh, make sure that when we say something's private or that it's resistant to reverse engineering, there are actual mathematical guarantees around that. Right. And I guess we can just touch on real quickly. Uh, do you guys have any partnerships with anyone right now? Uh, yes, we do. Hello. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we, we do. In fact, uh, we, we just uh, uh, partnered with Spirin, which is super exciting. Um, it opens up exciting. A, whole, a whole new use case for us, something that, you know, so our expertise is really around kind of the data infrastructure, the processing of data. Um, and, you know, the nice thing about this partnership with Spirion is that it allows us to help folks who are trying to understand where their bad data is, which is not something that is a priority for us. Right. It's a perfect match. So you, you use the word data portability. And so a lot, of, a lot of our audience is really familiar with data portability as it pertains to GDPR. Article 20 in particular has an mm. entire section on the right to data portability. And CCPA has a similar article, which basically says, you know, like the person that owns that data, namely, you know, St. Gabe Gums, they have a right to be able to, to receive the information they have about that data. And so that's, you know, so finding that data, understanding it is, is, is obviously step one. That's the most important part of it. But you mentioned data portability f- from your context. And really what it sounds like you were talking about was the ability to use that data, right, to, mm-hmm. to extract some business value out of that data, but without having to share the personal details of the people inside of that data set. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly a concept that uh, has been around for a while, but it's really starting to come home to roost in the infosec and privacy world. And yeah. uh, a couple episodes ago, I don't even know how many at this point, two, three, I'm not sure, but we had someone on um, who we dubbed, uh, we, we, we dubbed the privacy uh, unicorn. <laughs> right, right. He's got, he's got a great background in, in, in security and technology, but also, but also a great background in, uh, in, in privacy and was a lawyer, right? Um, name's Jason Cronk. So for those folks who haven't heard the episode, it's episode 14, shameless plug, back a few episodes, right? Go listen to Jason Cronk. It's an awesome episode. But one of the questions I asked him was to articulate for, for our listeners, um, you know, what, uh, what, what that really means to start introducing these these concepts of data de-identification and and uh, and differential privacy into into their workloads. So what does what does differential privacy mean, you know, for today's data portability? Yeah, yeah, and th- thanks for pointing that out, uh, Gabe. There's a lot of sort of. Uh, overloaded terms uh, in this space. And I actually come from the analytics and infrastructure side of data and less so from the privacy side. So when I think of portability, I think of the ability to move data around, but not, uh, but you're absolutely right that, you know, GDPR and CCPA have a specific, uh, <laughs> so their own specific take on that. And that's not what I really mean when I say data portability. Um, so you're, you're absolutely right to uh, point that out there. Um, but the key thing for us for differential privacy, the reason we care about it is that it's not perfect but at least it provides a definition of privacy that is, uh, I guess you could say, uh, deter- like it is sp- concrete and specific and you can actually address it and we can start talking about it in a concrete mathematical sense. Um, so that's really the key thing for us. So when we are creating the new data, we want to make sure that, you know, we're keeping epsilon values low, things like that, or at least that, you know, when we can let you know when, hey, you're starting to take on risk here and, you know, you have to make that choice as 
uh, a business. Because you're right, um, there are legal things like GDPR, CCPA. There are times when it's absolutely unacceptable. You know, obviously, if you're going to breach data, it needs to be resistant to reverse engineering. You know, to not be subject to GDPR fines. Um, but let's say you want to provide data to your developers. That is more of a business uh, decision in most cases. I mean, certainly there are uh, industries where that's not a business decision. If you're working with medical data, obviously HIP is not going to allow you to just willy-nilly expose uh, various parts of your enterprise without uh, the you know sort of the proper protocols in place. But uh, for most people, it's a business decision, and then you have to think about you know what do I want to do from a data governance perspective? Do I want to have my developers having production access? Do I want them to have slices of production? Do I want them to have some kind of de-identified version of production, which is, you know, what we think is actually the right answer. But again, it is a business decision and you have to look at sort of the cost benefits to your organization. And, uh, you know, what I think what we're looking to do is really drive down those costs so you can get all the benefits without, you know, having to take on a massive process with DevOps to, you know, set, stand up a special staging environment that's sanitized and protected. Right. And our listeners are, are very interested in both that reducing that cost, but as you mentioned, reducing the risk. So well, I want to keep pulling on this thread. It's 2020, which means it's a census year, which means any number of organizations have to share data with the U.S. government from universities sharing data about uh, students who live on campus. Um, and it's also 2020. So it's the year of the pandemic. Yay, pandemic. And uh, and so now we also have a lot of health information being shared. You mentioned HIPAA in particular. So I want to I want to call out two things. Um, so HIPAA's definition of identifiable data is any information that is a subset of health information, including demographic information that's been collected from an individual. But HIPAA also has a very explicitly defined uh, notion of what de-identified anonymous data is, right? So that you can make that data portable. And again, that word portable keeps showing up. It's it's what the P in HIPAA stands for, right? Um, yep. It's the Portability Act. And so they define de-identified anonymous data as health information that does not identify an individual and in respect to which there is no reasonable basis to believe that information can be used to identify an individual. That sentence in particular is the one I want to highlight, right? Um, no reasonable basis. That, that's very lawyer talk, reasonable basis. <laughs> <Yeah>. But... <laughs> But there's there's a mathematical basis for which it becomes very reasonable that you cannot identify an individual. And I think that's what you were, you were kind of alluding to there a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So HIPAA goes, I think, a step further, and they actually have something called safe harbor, where I can't remember, I think it's 13 fields or 15 fields or something like that, where they specifically call them out and say, if you sort of take care of these 13 or 15 fields, uh, your data is now uh, okay. Um, the issue with that is that when you talk to most data scientists, they say, I could do, I can, you know, safe harbor my data, but then I can't really do anything with it. And then, so there's an alternative approach within HIPAA where you can actually have a kind of an expert opinion come in and say, Hey, I'm looking at uh, the process you uh, anonymize, you use to anonymize your data. And I'm actually okay with this, even though it's not exactly what Safe Harbor says. I believe this is sufficiently resistant to rate identification that you're okay. And so uh, there's actually some interesting things. So we, we are working with customers today to you know automatically do Safe Harbor. The nice thing is it's very defined and uh, it's you know very clear what you have to do. There's also times where you really need to go more of this expert opinion and say, my data science team needs to be able to be productive or, you know, especially right now with the crisis going on, you need folks to be able to 
understand what's in their data so they can predict where outbreaks are going to happen. They can understand the true extent of the outbreak. Uh, and you don't want to tie their hands too much. On the other hand, you also don't want to expose protected health in information. And so it's this really tough balancing act. And that's where you know some of these uh, synthetic data and uh, you know de-identification techniques come in where you're going to try to be uh, more, uh, I guess, flexible with what you're doing, um, but you know, also, tr you know, that's where differential privacy comes in. So you can still be responsible with what you're doing, so that you're still protecting that information and not exposing folks to, uh, you know, unnecessary health information or information they really shouldn't be getting. Right, right. And the notion of re-identification attacks again is certainly one that has existed in the security world for a while. Kind of what you're talking about, the ability to take these different data sets and put them back together or what you're talking about is the actually the inverse of that security and so you can't do that but the that ability for folks to be able to re-identify data uh has has come up in the real world i can think of a few examples but i know you've kind of worked closely and examined these if you want to share some of the those real world kind of uh examples of where this may have gone afoul to some degree for what for you know no specific reason not one picking on anyone in particular but uh, certainly helpful for folks to understand what that looks like in the real world. Yeah, I mean, so that's part of the reason that it's so hard to really, uh, you know, to be, you know, compliant with, you know, a GDPR standard, like data can be breached, but has to be resistant to reverse engineering. Because what does that mean? Does that mean the data by itself has to be resistant? Because that's, you know, that's not as hard. But what if you start combining with other data sets? Um, you know, Netflix had their famous, you know, uh, kind of oops moment where folks were able to take some Netflix data that had been released, I think it was for a Kaggle competition, uh, and combine it with IMDB data and then figure out, I think it was like 50% of the users based on their ratings and other things, and then uh, re-identify re who uh, the users were and who um, were able to, you know, see their whole viewing history, which is, you know, that's pretty bad. And there's actually uh, some laws around that. Um, Massachusetts, but I mean, that's not to pick on Netflix. This is a very, very hard problem. Um, Massachusetts, state of Massachusetts uh, had a, a similar issue, I think, where they released a bunch of health records um, for academic purposes and folks were able to re-identify the governor. Um, so that's why you start having, you know, that's why Safe Harbor has these things in it. Like, you know, if there's below a certain number of people in a zip code, you have to, you know, remove, uh, you know, a few digits from that zip code. And that's just because you know, there's so many different ways that uh, there's so many attacks that you can make on the data that it's really, really hard to uh, be totally confident. Um, the nice thing about differential privacy is that they posit that uh, differential privacy is not a specific prevention to any particular type of attack that it should be, you know, resistant to essentially all of the types of attacks, although there's obviously caveats there and it's a very complex issue. You know, I, I want to, for our listeners, when we talk about attacks, much like uh, in the in the rest of the security realm, a lot of times data isn't intentionally uh, exposed or, or uh, you know, that data getting out there isn't a byproduct of an attack, as you highlight in those two cases. So a lot of times it's just mishandling, um, you know, not understanding how to cure that data. And in a world where you again have CCP and GDPR, and you've got these these clauses to be forgotten and to have folks be able to update, change their data, et cetera, and remove that data, there there seems to be a growing need to be able to to treat and cure data with these types of mechanisms. Um, that is to say. It, it's, it doesn't seem as though it's, it's any longer sufficient enough to just encrypt it, delete it, et cetera. You're, you, 
if you're going to want to extract value from these data sets, you're going to have to approach some of these methods. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing is, um, it, so you can encrypt or delete the data. Um, and, you know, obviously purging data is the most secure, like zero, you know, our CTO sometimes jokes, he said, the only data that's truly safe is no data. Um, but, <laughs> but that kind of, is, I think Gabe, as you alluded to, it ignores the business reality is that, you know, we need this data and we want people to have data. I mean, uh, do we want scientists trying to understand the epidemic without any data? Probably not. Uh, we, you know, so it's not really in the interest to just say no data all the right. time. Um, but, uh, you know, there are, you know, so we, you know, there's some folks we talk to who say that, you know, there are interpretations of GDPR today in Europe where, you know, anyone who hasn't used your service in a year is an implicit deletion request. And so that starts to really hamper your data science team because um, that basically means you have no data over, the, over a year. Um, or, or certainly no data from any user who hasn't is an active user from over a year. And then, so what does that mean? So if you start actually deleting or encrypting all of that data to the point where your data science team can't take advantage of it, uh, you could really hamper uh, the ability to get things done. And so I, I think that's the key thing when you're talking about that curing of the data is, can you detect that data and then cure it and cure it in a way where you still maintain some of the utility of the data so your data science seems productive. You can still understand. I mean, let's say you want to do a churn study if you have no users from over a year ago uh, in your data set to understand what churn looks like, how are you going to do that study? So you really need to have some way to go back and say, okay, let's do a churn study and let's still have some facsimile of that data that, uh, you know, looks like, you know, so I can actually do that churn study or, you know, uh, something like that. Your, your churn analogy is in lost on me because when I, when I have these conversations, the thing I, I like to highlight to folks is, this isn't a problem specific to GDPR, specific to CCPA, specific to, to HIPAA. If, if you are in business and you need data to do business, if you want to, to your point, do a churn study. If you want to understand users' behaviors, people buy these things. So maybe I should, you know, maybe I should keep more of these in stock. Or, you know, I see that people who buy these things also buy these things. And I'm kind of giving the Amazon example. Or if you simply want to be able to market to folks, right? A lot of folks buy external marketing data about uh, subjects as well, too, and being able to understand those demographics. Um, in a world where you now also have to balance against privacy is, uh, is no longer one where just doing things like encrypting and, uh, and deleting is necessary. Internally, we've been kind of talking about these things with, with uh, some of the experts that, that we interact with as you know, kind of being privacy grade uh, approaches, this privacy grade discovery, classification, remediation. And, and really what we're trying to get to is that, that privacy by design notion and and be able to articulate that. So, uh, I, I do. I really appreciate your perspective on this. It's really good to get yet another expert in the in in the the pure data sense uh, of of the word on on the show to to talk about these things. So, um, that's awesome, Cam. I've been hogging all the airtime. What? Uh, no, what this is enjoyable for me as well. What do you look at as an, a good example for? like a challenge that you guys overcame with your company that, that helps a company? Like what was a good example of, of what you guys can do or what you've done that you kind of overcame for a company? Sure. Sure. Um, well, there, there's so many things, um, you know, around, uh, there's so many challenges when you're working with data. Um, but some of the things that, uh, you know, I think are really critical and important for folks is make sure that you can handle the scale. Um, so, you know, we're working with folks with all sizes of data from gigabytes to actually petabytes. Um, 
And so one of the so that was kind of an interesting thing for us is when we started this company, we had this idea of oh, synthetic data, this is you know super valuable. And then it is, but it also needs all these other things, you know, kind of bundled with it so that you can actually uh, you know, have this kind of like data studio that you need so that you can create yeah. the data you need um, to support data minimalism and other efforts like that. So, uh, you know, so we, we, when we started working with folks, um, as soon as we got to a certain size data scale, they said, well, I don't, okay, so I have a production that's 10 terabytes, let's say. I don't want to make every dev instance 10 terabytes. So the first thing you need to do is subset that data. So you actually take that data and then you need to create a representative sample before you do the synthesis because you want to have things, you know, let's say you want to do nightly or hourly builds with that data. To actually even make that possible, you need to make it smaller, make the models on the smaller data, and then, you know, use those models to generate new data. So there's um, so that's kind of one example. There's other things that came up around, you know, what if uh, developers are pushing um, updates to the data while you're building the new data? Do you, what if the, you know, some developer pushes a column of social security numbers into the database right as you're, you know, overnight? Uh, do you automatically blast that into the, you know, lower environments from production? Absolutely not. That would be horrible. So what you want to do is you need to, you know, sort of uh, have some ability to notice schema updates um, so there's a whole bunch of infrastructure problems that come up as you're trying to do this in addition to, uh, you know, sort of the sciencey parts of this, which are the, you know, the, the differential privacy, the synthesis of data. But then there's a whole bunch of just kind of blocking and tackling uh, data infrastructure problems that, you know, you want to solve for your customers so that they're truly getting value out of it and you don't, uh, you know, push a lot back to their DevOps team that, you know, have other problems, other high priority business problems to solve. Right. And, Kind of off off topic, I guess, but you, you guys are from San Francisco, right? Are you are you part of the the Silicon Valley um, small companies? Is that where you guys kind of started out? Uh, we are based in Silicon Valley, although actually we have uh, in Atlanta and the San Francisco office. So, oh, cool. Um, yep, part of the founding team uh, is in Atlanta, so uh, we are bi coastal. Um, despite our small size, uh, and you know, it's nice because you know it, it gives us uh, you know more places to hire and uh, you know diversity of opinion, all, you yeah. know, all, all the good things that you get from having uh, multiple offices. Um, but yeah, we did um, we did raise money in uh, Silicon Valley, so we're we're backed by Bloomberg Beta X Fund, uh, a VC called Heavybit, um, and then we have some angels out here as well. Awesome. What's the future look like for? Tonic, what, what are you guys hoping to do for 2020 and beyond? So there, there's a bunch of things. So I think, uh, you know, one of the key things for us this year is actually trying to figure out how we can help uh, companies stay productive, uh, how we can help scientists stay productive in light of, you know, the current uh, pandemic. And, you know, one of the things we want to help out with uh, is remote work. Um, so you now it's kind of a CISO's nightmare to some degree is you have, you know, a bunch of people that used to come in, work in your office, you know, uh, inside your network. Uh, and now you have a bunch of people that have to work at home and they have to be bringing data to their system. Well, they don't have to, but uh, they probably need to bring data to their, you know, machines uh, over the VPN most likely. Uh, and so how do you actually manage that? How do you keep your risk, uh, you know, uh, uh, reasonable uh, under these conditions? And so, one of the things we're trying, we're going to be trying to help folks with is figuring out, can we uh, create a remote work environment where folks are still practicing data minimalism, uh, using only the data they need, not, uh, you know, 
having to get a bunch of data that they don't need, um, but still being productive from their homes. So that, that's a really important thing. And I think uh, it's going to be really important for the economy uh, as a whole to, to make sure that we have uh, this happens. Because if we start having really bad breaches and things like that, and, and CISOs have to start locking down yeah. uh, people's access, that you know, it, it reduces risk, but then it also reduces productivity. Um, so what's your favorite drink? So during this pandemic, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say during the pandemic. I always like uh, uh, I, my probably my favorite drink is a Negroni, um, but you know that during the pandemic, uh, you know, it's sometimes harder to get ingredients, so you know, sometimes yeah. it's just uh, straight whiskey or, or beer. You know, you can't go wrong with either of those. Yeah, I, I have a 19 month old at home, so you know, uh, you know, try, I feel try your pain. To, <laughs> so you know just trying to uh actually maybe i should say my favorite drink is something with caffeine in it <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely drink drinking too much coffee and then adding alcohol at the end of the day always a great combo uh, absolutely yeah i i hear from the the sleep uh community that that's really the ideal thing yeah <laughs> definitely not <laughs> <laughs> well awesome man i ian i really really appreciate you coming on um is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to to talk about before we sign off no, just uh, really grateful to be here. Super excited about, uh, you know, where this partnership can take us. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, it's been, it's been great just, you know, getting to know you guys. Yeah, this is awesome. Do you, do you uh, have people follow you on social media? Do you care about that kind of stuff? Do you, we, do you speak anywhere? Uh, we do. So, um, you know, we, we're pretty heads down on product, so we probably should be doing more of that, but you know, we have a Twitter, uh, it's yep. uh, t- slash tonic AI. Um, and uh, we also, uh, we've spoken at a bunch of different conferences. Uh, we spoke at Data Council, um, a few other places. Uh, we have a talk we do on differential privacy, which we'll probably be posting soon. So Perfect. yeah, follow us on social media. Um, you know, our website is tonic.ai. So uh, we have a blog there as well. So um, we, you know, we try to post things that we think are interesting to the community. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ian. And Gabe, did you want to say anything before we sign off? No, I'm good. An absolute pleasure having you aboard. Uh, I, I love the additional insight you can bring to, to our listeners from, from the data side of things. So appreciate it. All right. Yeah. Thanks so much, man. Cheers. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Oh, thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Privacy, Please. This podcast is brought to you by Spirion, protecting what matters most. Join us next week and every week as we delve into the intriguing world of security and privacy. You can email us at privacyplease at spirion.com and hit us up on our Twitter at privacyplspod. If you want to read more into these topics, check out our blogs on spirion.com. Again, I'm Cameron Ivey, an all-around decent guy. Until next time.